Welcome to the Park Road Podcast for October 19th, 2014. Today's podcast is a sermon given by Russ Dean, co-pastor with Amy Jacks Dean at Park Road Baptist Church. His sermon this morning is entitled, Made Equal by Grace. Monty Bennett wears his kippah as a reminder of his newly found Jewish faith. But as I reminded the choir before we came out here this morning, he's just a Baptist at heart. (laughs) If you don't get the sermon, remember the song. In 1861, a group of French businessmen met with finance minister Jean-Baptiste Colbert who asked in the course of that meeting how the French government could best promote commerce and assist the economy. According to legend, one of the businessmen named Legendre replied dryly, laissez-nous faire. Well, even if you speak as little French as I do, you will recognize that phrase, laissez-faire. Legendre's reply, which means literally, let us be, summarizes the economic system associated with the work of Adam Smith. The father of modern economics heralded the value of an unregulated market, a system of buying and selling, of invention and production that was best guided by only the invisible hand of market forces. Of course, there are lots of complicating nuances, but basically Adam Smith said the best way to set prices for products and services and wages is to keep any regulating agency out of it. If producers overprice their goods, no one will buy them. If they undervalue their labor, no one will work for them. Monsieur Legendre's advice to the finance minister echoed Smith, just let us be. In other words, business knows best, so keep your hands out of it, s'il vous plaît. And thus was born the argument that is at the heart of much of this country's great discontent. How much government? The battle is on, and as you know, the sides argue incessantly. Say the word capitalism, and you will capture an audience. And preach as if you have anything against its blessed free market, and you will just as quickly lose that following, as I know from personal experience. For some people, the idea of the free market has become much larger than just an economic system. It has come to symbolize a way of life with its own assumptions, its own rationale of reward and punishment, its own ethic of entitlement. This great American myth idolizes wealth and condemns poverty. If you are poor in a free market society, It's all your fault. 
So being poor in America is seen as a reflection of moral character, not just a fact of financial disadvantage. Though it hasn't always been this way in a nation born of immigrants and built on the hard work of the laboring masses. We have so ingrained the logic of the market society that many people will be unable to hear a critique as anything but anti-American, which it is not. But we have become so infatuated with the market, its power and its potential, that we have lost sight of the greater good, which is that free market of ideas and that commonwealth of a free people who are individuals yet in community. Community whose success depends on the good of the whole and whose failure will be its sure demise. Douglas Meeks, a professor at Wesley Theological Seminary in Washington says, the absolute prevailing logic of our society is the market logic. In fact, I would say it's the most prevailing logic in all the world. Robert Heilbronner says that the character of our society, the nature of our society is accumulation of wealth as power. The logic of our society is the exchange of commodities. Meeks goes on in that article to say, you have to have money to be afforded justice in a society like ours. The logic of our society is the exchange of commodities. Everything dances around these realities. We believe them so implicitly that we are willing to serve them and to shape our lives according to that logic. That's what I meant when I called it a great American myth the great American myth. It is an idea so pervasive that we shape our lives around it. As I read that quote, I wondered how many people would be confused by his words, thinking, how else would we shape a society? Accumulation of wealth as power? What else is there? What's wrong with that? Meeks is not dismissing capitalism or commending any other system of commerce, but he is trying to remind us that the accumulation of wealth as power should not be the center of our society. For people of faith, we must center our worldview on those who are ultimately responsible for that wealth and who are often abused by that power. In a file in my office labeled Justice, I found a monthly letter of theological reflection from Greater Birmingham Ministries. I had filed it years ago and had forgotten Robert Montgomery, whose words I had underlined in that piece. Underneath our lack of peace, think about our community and our world. Underneath our lack of peace is a lack of justice. Justice is our shared commitment to looking out for each other as neighbors so that our confidence in our beloved community is greater than our fear of one another or our fear of personal want. 
Greed and selfish fear are twin enemies of justice and peace. If you want peace in this community or around the world, you must work for justice. And if you want justice, you've got to think bigger than the logic of the market. Professor Meek says starkly, the church has been so absorbed into the market society that God's justice simply cannot appear. Wow. Strong words. So absorbed in the way the market works, a commodity economy, that God's justice can't even appear. Well, maybe Jesus can help. Jesus' words, which are not a condemnation of capitalism per se, ancient Israel, as you know, was not a capitalistic society, and his hearers were as offended as we are. Jesus' condemnation was actually far broader than a condemnation just of an economic system. Here's the story. A landowner, obviously a wealthy man in that society, went out early to hire laborers. Now from the very beginning of the parable, something should have struck you about that, something strange. What landowner ever hired his own common day laborers? He had a manager, a foreman that we meet later in the story. But from the outset, Jesus is telling us something different about this man. He had a hands-on approach to his business. At six o'clock in the morning, he went out to hire a group of workers for the usual daily wage. Eugene Peterson calls it a dollar. It was one denarius, a simple coin in ancient Israel. Three hours later, at 9 o'clock, he goes back to the market again. Why did he go back to the market again? Does the story say that he needed more workers because the first workers couldn't handle it all? The first workers weren't working hard enough, weren't getting the job done? That's not what the story says. The story simply says he went out to the market and he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. Let me ask you what you do when you see people standing idle on our street corners or gathered in front of the stores or sitting in the yard in the middle of the workday. Do you offer them work or offer them at least a thought of compassion or do you castigate them for being shiftless and lazy and assume that they are in fact responsible for their own impoverished plight? The landowner in Jesus' parable just puts them to work. No questions, no criticisms, and he agrees to pay them whatever is right. Please remember that word, not what is fair, not a day's wage, he agrees to pay them what is right. The landowner then goes to the market at noon, and again at three o'clock. There's still some idlers there, still passing the time, still not working. He gives them a job too. And at five o'clock, he goes one final time, and he says some are still loitering all day long. Why are you not working, he asked them. 
And they say, well, nobody has offered to hire us. So he sends them to the field too. Now the story should clearly have our interest, but when the manager lines up to pay them, well, Jesus really goes to meddling with our free market ways. Apparently, apparently there's an ancient rabbinical tale that is similar to this one in which the landowner hires laborers in the morning, and then with two hours left in the day, he goes out to hire other workers. When he pays them the same, he says to those who have worked all day, you see, those who, did, who worked for two hours did as much in two hours as you did all day long. The rabbi's response follows market justice. You get what you earn. But Jesus will not have it that way. He will not leave it at that. There is something different going on in Jesus' ethic, in God's justice. It's called grace. Did you hear it? Amazing grace. Taking the last, first, Jesus' landowner pays each one a denarius a day's wage, a dollar. And he tells them that those who have worked a full day, uh, and, and Jesus tells them that the ones who worked the full day started to get excited. Suddenly they assumed that they were gonna get more than their contractual obligation. You know, they had worked all day long. Fair is fair, right? They worked for one hour, we deserve more. But God's justice is concerned with what is right, not what is fair, according to the market. Each of the employees is paid the same thing. Those who work all day grumble, you have made them equal to us. And there's the heart of the story. How dare you? They're not equal to us. We're better than they are. We deserve more. We work more. In his commentary, Eugene Boring says, they have what they have by the economic justice of the market. Others have been made equal by grace. It's a maddening parable, isn't it? You cannot do business like that, can you? You cannot expect owners to pay for what has not been earned, can you? Well, it seems to me, as I tell this parable from time to time and watch people react to it, the fact that we either dismiss the parable out of hand as something unrealistic, or we are so indignant at Jesus' ridiculous lesson, those responses should tell us that we need to hear the parable today as much as Jesus' original hearers did, and they lived in a completely different market economy. Let me remind you again that the parable does not offer a new economic policy, but because Jesus speaks to our hearts, indignant as they are, there are implications for every aspect of our lives, including our economic. Many lessons we could learn. Let me suggest two briefly today. First, what if our economy really was as people-centered as this landowner's was? 
The income inequality that we are seeing in our nation is unprecedented and it is immoral. No one that I know and no argument that I have ever read has suggested CEOs do not deserve to make more than hourly earners in entry-level jobs. They have risked more, they have invested more, of course they will receive more. But the value we have placed in those at the top is without justification. What is it going to take for corporate boards in this country to see the value of people who have made them and their CEOs rich? Corporate boards could change the formulas, investing more in the labor force, valuing their employees as human beings of worth. They could pay what is right not just what the market will bear. And CEOs would still get ridiculously rich. In our schools, we value administrators far more as evidenced by the salary structure than we value those who actually teach our children. We have a top-down, bottom-line mentality across our culture. And we will not ensure our best future in the long term with such a mentality. Bankers used to offer loans to people they knew, and they would maintain relationships while those customers paid those loans. Today, we just fill out reams of paper, and if we qualify, we get a mortgage, which the very next day gets sold to the highest bidder who neither knows nor cares anything about who we are. With such a depersonalized, money-only mentality, it's no great wonder the system almost collapsed and that we chose to save the people who created the mess in the first place is only proof of our infatuation with our system. Business owners, large and small, and school boards and corporate boards need a lesson from Jesus whose landowner had his hands in his own work. He knew the worker's need. He obviously cared more for people than just for his own bottom line. Another lesson we might learn is to appreciate generosity a little more and to celebrate when other people succeed. The workers complained not because they were treated unfairly. They were not treated unfairly. They got exactly what they contracted with the owner to get. They complained because someone that they deemed unworthy had benefited from the generosity of the landowner. We have come to value the idea of the free market so much that we would clearly rather see a few people do very well even as the masses struggle than to change our policies and encourage more success from the bottom to the top. In Moses' instruction to ancient Israel, he says, if we will obey the Lord our God, there will be no one in need in the land. Well, their economic system was different, but I believe that promise remains. No one should be in need in a country as prosperous as ours. We just need to care as much for our neighbor's welfare as for our own and celebrate a generosity that offers that potential. 
The psalmist says, the Lord is good to all. God's compassion is over all. And Douglas Hare suggests that those who worship such a God must imitate God's generosity, not begrudge it. In the story of the prodigal son, the older brother just cannot celebrate his younger brother's homecoming because he begrudged his father's generosity. Of course, that younger brother did not deserve to be welcomed home as he was. He had wasted his father's money. He had lived foolishly. But God's kingdom is not based on what we deserve. Thanks be to God. It's based on grace. Did you hear it? Amazing grace. Generosity goes beyond justice. And the owner chose to be generous to those hired last, perhaps because he knew that they had the same human need as those hired first. The grumblers are not reacting to injustice but to generosity. And about that, they have no right to complain. Our own lives, even our own economic system, would do well to infuse a little of that grace. My friend, the rabbi, Murray Ezra, has told me that one of the things he finds the most disturbing and unacceptable about Christian theology is that belief in deathbed conversions. You know, that belief that you can live your whole life doing terrible things with no concern for God, and then you could ask for forgiveness as you lay dying, and that would be enough. Well, I understand why that kind of theology is offensive. It runs completely counter to our mindset. It is counter to our myths of progress and independence and just rewards. It is counter to the logic of the market that we should get just what we deserve. I do understand why it's offensive. But it is the logic of grace. It is Jesus' countercultural message of hope for hourly wage workers and for repentant dying sinners like you and me. Sometimes all we have is God's justice. May it be so. Amen. Thanks for listening today. We invite you to learn more about Park Road at parkroadbaptist.org. Park Road is a progressive faith community located in Charlotte, North Carolina, encouraging independent thought, community service, social justice, and interfaith understanding. Grace and peace to you.